begin the new series that is going to follow this entire book of Titus. And this series may surprise you. I don't know how many sermons you've heard over the last uh, decade or two about the book of Titus. Show of hands, how many of you have heard a sermon about the book of Titus lately? Ha, one person. I'm impressed. It's a, uh, it's a tough book. I'm not going to lie. It's a tough book. The fact is, is I have entered into this topic with uh, some reservation, but it is marking the end of my, <clears throat> what I call my first year agenda of preaching. Because when you go into a church to become the new pastor of the church, there are two things you have to do. One is to get to know the people, their story, their history, their personalities, their community, and I've done my best to do that, but you also want to know a little bit about me and what my priorities are. And for me, the best way to communicate that is in the Sunday sermon. So I've been a little stingy with pulpit time, and that's deliberate because the goal is to help communicate to you my core values and those things that will direct the way that I provide spiritual leadership here. This is the last of those specifically directed messages after, after this series is over. Um, we'll move in a slightly different direction and there will be a greater breadth of, of uh, activities in worship. But I want you to know what matters and I'm going to hope that by now I have won your favor enough that I can wrap this up with some pretty tough stuff. So I'm telling you now to brace yourselves. This is going to be interesting to say the least, but it will be worth it. The letter, <clears throat> the letter to Titus is written by Paul. Titus is one of those people like Timothy that Paul has planted in churches that he started and then as he moved on he left someone behind in charge. So Titus is one of the pastors of the churches that Paul left behind in a particular place um, in Crete, for example, is where this one is. Timothy was left in uh, the area around the Ephesus and so forth. <clears throat> and Paul gives them some very specific orders. And you'll find that there's a similarity between the letters to Timothy and Titus because Paul's basically trying to prepare them to deal with the same problems in both places. And the problems basically have to do with the kind of watering down of the Christian message <clears throat> and a combining of the popular culture of the day with the Christian message. And um, there's a sort of Hellenism or Greek culture that has been predominant even under Roman rule. And the people have adopted the message of Christ, but they haven't done so in a way where they have sort of put to death or unlearned the popular culture. And this is creating difficulties that Paul wants them to be particularly on guard against. And so this is kind of the setting of the stage for that story. So I'm going to go ahead now and read the message, the first chapter of the message to Titus. And I would encourage you to follow along as you are able. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, 
he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our Savior, God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, are in our communion faith, or common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all human commands of those, excuse me, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but they By their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. The word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, Pastor, what are you thinking? (laughs) It's in the Bible, so it's something God intends for us to glean God's mind from. The Bible is... The word, that is not the written word so much as the expression of the mind of God. And in this message, what God intends for us to learn is going to be difficult to parse out in our present state, but I think there's some fundamental truths that we can easily glean from this. As we get ready to do this series of messages in the next few weeks, the first thing that you need to understand is that this is a fundamental dispute between Greek culture and what I'm going to call today Judeo-Christian culture. In other words, it's a debate between the culture of the world and the culture of Bible-believing people. It is easily identified among those people, but It might surprise you how easily identified it is among our people and how Greek versus Bible culture still exists to this day. See, Greek and Jewish culture have supplied pretty much all the foundations for the Western world. And if you think about it, you can see that pretty plainly. 
And I think what you realize in our country in particular is that we are slowly slipping away from a more biblically based cultural standard. And by that, I don't mean that we're all Christians or that we all uh, believe in the same way, but that the Bible has influenced the basic moral structure of our culture in more ways than the world has. And so that means that we tend to put certain values into play even in the secular, non-religious environment, simply because most of the people are influenced in some way or another by the Bible. And so we're not talking necessarily about religious or sanctimonious people even in popular culture or in the government or anything. We're simply saying that, that in the Western world, there are two predominant influences that have existed for say a thousand years or more, and they have either been the Greek culture, where we get great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and so forth, or we get a Judeo-Christian biblical culture where we get the moral foundations of the Bible. And if you look at our country, for example, Western culture in particular, say like Great Britain and East, you know, Western Europe, for example, you begin to see how slowly this Greek culture, which is a very general term in today's context, is becoming more predominant than the biblical culture. So that's basically the argument that Paul is presenting right now to Titus and to Timothy. He's saying, guys, I can already see it happening. And I can tell you that if you don't stand against it, it will just naturally overtake the biblical worldview. And he cites in particular the example of the circumcisers. And this is an argument that you've heard if you've studied scripture, you know that this is an argument that came up in the church in Jerusalem in the very earliest days of the church. It's something that the people at Ephesus fought with Paul over. Wherever there were Jewish converts to Christianity, they felt that you didn't become a Christian without first becoming a Jew. And that was where the whole idea of circumcision comes from. So it isn't just the physical act, but it's the idea that Christianity doesn't stand alone. And there were people who believed that in order to be a Christian, you had to be a Jew first. And Paul argued against that. And that's why he's known as the preacher to the Gentiles, because he would say that you don't need the circumcision of the body or the religious affiliation of Judaism in order to be circumcised in the heart by the Holy Spirit and to become a follower of Jesus Christ and a born-again believer. So that's all in play in the letter that we are reading right now. So let's just look at the differences for a minute between the Greek culture or the Hellenist culture and the Judeo-Christian biblical culture. First of all, the Greek culture is committed to multiple gods. The Greek culture has a god for everything. And these gods are all formed in the image of the creation. In other words, the gods are made to look like people, to act like people, to have the same impulses and drives, afflictions, as people. In fact, many of the gods are the very spawn of lusts that the gods have for human creatures. And 
they worship the creation. They think nature is the main thing and that nation, nature is the, is the ultimate. And therefore, they worshiped nature. They worshiped, uh, they had, had gods for the crops. They had the god of the sky, a god of the sea. You know, they, they viewed the created as the ultimate. Well, Judeo-Christian biblical culture sees God as one God and a God that doesn't have a form or shape that we can identify. Though we use certain language to describe God, even in the Bible, it is only a communications device, but it's clear in the Bible that, that we don't, view, you don't intentionally view God in a physical form like our own. We simply do it as a matter of convenience because it's more important to get to the heart of the message. You don't want to get stuck on the inconceivable. And this, we would say, is vital to the very nature of God because God would be more godlike if we weren't entirely able to grasp all of God's qualities. So the very fact that God is not entirely knowable is one of the greatest qualifications God has for being the one and only God. We view God's creation as a gift from God intended to be God-honoring, and so it's meant to be a reflection of the Creator. And we view humanity as living in a balance between the spiritual and the physical. To be like God in our nature, more so every day, and yet honoring God with our physical being in every way that we can. And so it's very natural to be productive, to create work for others, to create opportunity and life and life-affirming things, to help people with problems, to create opportunities for prosperity, to create a culture of liberty and a culture for creativity, to create a God-like community where God is honored through the expressions of the beings that God created. And in that way, we're seeking this balance between body and soul. The Greek culture has gods that can be written off as frivolous and irrelevant. So whenever a god commands something of a person in the Greek culture, all we have to do is outreason the god or the request of the god, and then we can justify ignoring God, the gods. On the other hand, in the Judeo-Christian biblical culture, when God makes a command of us, there's no arguing with it. There's no disputing the will of God. You may choose not to obey God, but we understand that lack of obedience to God and that lack of deference and respect to God as sin. The very thing that separates us from the balance that we seek in a relationship that can only happen when we are at peace with our Creator. And so there's a clear understanding that if we resist the will of God, then we are at odds with God, and therefore there's imbalance, and this is a problem. Whereas in the Greek culture, people look at gods as being eh, irrelevant, 
In fact, there's a lot of popular culture. You know, I've told you before, I like science fiction and so forth. And this is an image and an idea that's visited all the time in literature and in films and things that gods have a tendency in the Greek sense of gods to make themselves so irrelevant that they die of loneliness because people don't need them anymore. Yet our God is not dependent on us for God's worth and meaning, and yet God, because of love for the creation, especially the human creation, which is not so low as animal creation and not so high as angel creation, but in this uniquely designed lifestyle of being made in the image of God so that we can even make choices in the way that God does, where the animal lacks a will, where the angel lacks a will, the human is able to choose to have a relationship with God. And so God, in a unique, one-of-a-kind, in all of creation situation, has created a being where his will is that we would love him and serve him, but his will is also that we would choose to do so. Therefore, as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, God has the unique quality of willing us to be obedient and faithful to God and also willing us to have the freedom to choose not to be obedient and faithful to God, which is a unique quality that is not duplicated in any religion or creation culture in any other part of human history. So here's the difference between the Greek and the Judeo-Christian biblical view. But let's talk about it in our own terms, because now we can bring it back to what Paul's getting at, because it's really about human priorities versus godly priorities, isn't it? Now, I know most of you are not imagining yourselves as Greeks. I'm sure that you do not view Greek culture as a problem for you. And yet, would you stop and just think for a minute that Greek culture is what gives us the whole concept of beauty. That the pursuit of beauty in our culture, both male and female beauty, is a Greek invention. That growing old and appearing to grow old physically is something the Greek culture absolutely despises and rejects. Whereas Judeo-Christian biblical culture elevates oldness and aging and the elder in our culture where the very fact that some of us are older and have gray hairs and pot bellies and a lot of wisdom stored up in our heads is something to be revered in the Judeo-Christian biblical culture. And so I wonder if this Greek thing is still an issue in our country, in our Western culture. I don't want to make you feel bad, but I did tell you this was going to be a tough series. How much time did you spend getting ready for church this morning? And who were you getting ready to be with? See, we don't see ourselves as Greek in the biblical description, but the fact is we have Grecian shrines in our homes, do we not? We have Grecian shrines in our homes. Some of us have a shrine called a garage and there's an object in there that we worship. Some of us have closets in our homes with objects that we adore. 
and on and on it goes. Do you realize we have little gods made in our own image in most of our homes? They're called children or pets. And we treat them like gods because we do anything and everything for them so that they will love us back. Right? You see, Paul was expressing this concern early in the life of the church because he knew that it would be a constant struggle. And it is to this day. He saw the danger of deluded Christianity and he recognized that the greatest temptation is to embrace Jesus as a concept and to claim Christianity while not really choosing an entirely different worldview. Now, by the grace of God, I figured this out a long time ago, and this is why my mission as a pastor, because I'm a real big believer in mission statements and vision statements, and not those long, silly ones that you spend months writing and then put in a drawer and forget about. Simple phrases that say, this is what I'm aiming at, and I remind myself every day, this is what I'm aiming at. You want to know what I'm aiming at as a pastor? No matter where I serve, no matter who I serve, to help you develop a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview and to help you eradicate the Greek view. That's my mission as your pastor, as anybody's pastor. My mission is to help you adopt a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview so that when you watch the news, you see it through the lens of the Holy Spirit and Scripture. So that when you are in conversation with others in your community and you're setting priorities for your schools and your businesses and your church, you're doing so from a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. The vision for the church is that we would be vital to the well-being of our community from a biblical Christian worldview. And so it goes. Being disciples seeking disciples, and thus changing the world. So when Paul says that we have to refute the ungodly, it sounds like fighting words the way he's writing, but then again, Cretans or Cretans have been known as people that need a good thump on the head to get their mind right. Historically, that's an insult, you know, to refer to someone as a Cretan. And Paul gave you the ammunition for the insult. I would advise you just to avoid going there. But there is a clear indication, because you might get thumped back. There is a clear indication here that Paul is saying, there's no pussyfooting around here. You've got to stand firm and say plainly, this is Christianity. This is what it is to follow Christ. This is not a watered-down version of an old Greek religion. It's not a new God to add to the pantheon of gods. It is the God of all creation, of all time, and beyond time and space. And there is no mixing it. And so this presents us with a difficult conclusion. Because this struggle between the Greek or Hellenist view 
and the Judeo-Christian biblical view is still here today, why I'll even argue that it's right here in this congregation of people. Because we all struggle. I being chief among sinners, as the Apostle Paul would say, we all struggle with the temptations that are popular and so common in our culture that it's hard sometimes to do anything without being exposed to them. We see the extreme forms and find them fairly easy to resist. When you ladies go to college, you will find that there are extreme forms of Greek culture, <laughs> both literal and figurative. You will find, as I told my children, as each one went away to college or into the world, I said, look, I've sheltered you to some extent, but I have to warn you now that you are young adults, you will see things that will appall you. The face and the ugliness of a completely humanistic worldview is right there in front of you. Seek balance, err on the side of grace, give people the benefit of the doubt, but do not join them in their extreme expressions of Greek or physical human culture. If it offends you, don't be cruel, but recognize that the source of that sense of offense is the spirit within you. Treat people with love and dignity. Show them a better way before you try to tell them about a better way. Make choices that are difficult, but God-honoring. And in time, it does get easier because this, this religion of ours, this Bible of ours is a is a story of submission. It's about putting God before self and then recognizing that God so loves you that once you put God in total control of your life, God grants you through grace and love and providence everything and anything that you need. And that you're your life really is more abundant as Jesus meant it to, to be. When he said, I gave, came that you could have life and have it abundantly. He, he wasn't talking about gold furniture and stuff like you see on certain TV shows. He was talking about an abundance that makes your soul want to explode with joy. And this is the testimony of living as disciples that will influence and affect others so that they might also seek discipleship. So recognize at first that there are those who are Christian in a way that reminds me of Paul's message to those who worship at the temple to the unknown God. They come regularly to this temple, to this altar, and they sacrifice at this altar, and yet they don't know the God to whom they seek. Those people who go to church regularly and do it more out of a sense of obligation and habit than as a 
act of worship, who do it more as a social exercise than as an act of supplication and generous love given back to a generous God. The message that Paul will teach us about leadership in particular in a local church is that it must be given by people who have clearly demonstrated their willingness to put God first and therefore to direct the life of the local church in a God-honoring way that doesn't pursue self-interests so much. It's about putting leaders in place in the church who have a deep desire and a better than average, batting average at living in a biblical Christian way. Let us pray. Almighty God, we've heard a hard word and yet it is filled with your grace and your love and provision. And now, Lord, I pray for everyone who hears this message that they might once again repent of sin, turn to you, seek you, think of you above else, uh, other things above self, and then, Lord, should they desire to provide leadership among others, especially in a Christian context, in this church context, that they might do so with an excellence of humility that is remarkable and impossible to miss. And this we pray in all things unnamed as well, for Jesus' sake. Amen.